The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 16th and 47th in Seattle's U District. Well, welcome once again, everybody. Glad that you are here on this week 10 Tuesday, final week of the quarter, final week to be together until April. Uh, it's, gone, it's gone really fast. Um, I start out uh, tonight by asking the question, what happens to your attitude when you don't get what it is that you want? Uh, I can recall, I must have been probably about 10 years old, maybe 11, and what I really wanted for Christmas was an Atari 2600. Okay, now this was back in the, in the, the ancient days of video games. Okay, this, this was the best home video game console that you could possibly have with classics like Pac-Man, Donkey Kong, and what you see here, Pitfall. Okay, now... Honestly, I don't even know what the object of pitfall is, okay? But you swing over pits, and you have to avoid the scorpion and jump over those logs and things like that. In, in any event, I really wanted this Atari 2600, and at Christmas time, you know, I'm, I'm opening a couple of presents, and we're going through them. No Atari 2600, no Atari 2600, no Atari 2600, and this Christmas sucks, okay? Well... As we get to the end, uh, my mom says, oh, Ryan, I think I forgot something out in the garage. I go out there, and there's an Atari 2600. And then my spirits were lifted, and it instantly became the best Christmas ever, even though I got, all my friends got an Atari 2600 the year before. Uh, but I played there, so that's how I knew I wanted one even a year later. So I finally got my Atari 2600 and set all the high scores in the family. It was great. Uh, it's, it's a story of, of when we have expectations about something we want and those expectations aren't delivered in the way that we want them to. There's a story of, of a pastor in a small town who around Christmas, they, the congregation would always kind of rally and, and give the, the pastor a, a substantial monetary gift. Well, one year, this, this uh, group of congregates brings the pastor just a, a pair of gloves, a pair of gloves. And the pastor is like, he's trying to be gracious, but he's notably disappointed. And it's like, well, I guess I'll try them on. He puts his hands in there. And then all of a sudden his spirits lifted as he found that there were $100 bills stuck into each of the fingers. Okay. All of a sudden, boom, that's what I wanted. Uh, more tragically, uh, the a story of, of a, um, a father and a son that Graduation is coming up. That could be the case for some of you in this room. And as graduation is approaching, Father, you know, the, they talked about your gift is, is going to be a, a car. Uh, and they went car shopping and, and had looked around. And on graduation day, uh, Dad comes to Son and says, you know, I decided, I, I decided that I wanted to get you uh, something else. And he gives him a little box. He opens it up. It's a Bible. And there's a card inside that's congratulating him and and everything, and, and the, the son throws the gift down in disgust and walks away from his dad. They didn't speak for two months until, tragically, the father dies. 
and the son goes back and is cleaning things up and finds this gift, this Bible, opens it up, sees the card, flips through it, and as he's packing it away, something falls out of the back, and it's a cashier's check for the exact amount of the car that they had selected together, and they didn't talk. What happens when your expectations about what you wanted are not met? We're doing a series where we are looking at the cross from two different views, from before and from after. Last week, Barclay got us started with, with a talk where, where, as we're looking at before, we were headed into Jerusalem at the high point of Jesus' ministry. It's, the, it's, it's his most popular moment. They're singing songs as he comes in, and Barclay led us in a great reflection about how on this side of the cross, there is an understanding of one's belovedness. That as Jesus comes in, he's beloved by this crowd, and as, as they all fall away, what we continue to remember is that Jesus is still beloved by his Father. Well, this week, we want to spend some time reflecting on the after side of the cross. As we, as after Easter, after Good Friday and Easter Sunday, we're going to walk out of Jerusalem with a couple of more people from the Gospel of Luke that have, uh, that have some questions that need to get answered on this Easter Sunday. Ultimately, we're hoping to see a view of the cross that changes as things happen as we continue on the road of faith. Let me pray for us as we get started. Uh, Lord, would you open up your word to us? Would you be our teacher? Uh, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Okay, uh, this is a great story, one that I don't remember discovering until I got to college. I grew up in the church, but for whatever reason, this was a story that, that eluded me, and it has become uh, one of my favorites. So we're going to read it in, in three different sections, and my hope is that we might be able to answer a few questions that come up along the way. Here we go. This is Luke 24, beginning at the 13th verse. It says this, now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As, and as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem? Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all people. The chief priests, and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. And here's, here's the key verse. If you're reading along in your Bible, circle it, underline it. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. 
Now, in addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. So what's going on here? Two people that are leaving Jerusalem after the Passover the festival. Uh, they're headed to, to Emmaus, this, this village due west. We're not sure if these two people are, are two guys. A lot of people believe it's a man and a woman, Cleopas and, uh, and his wife. Uh, and they meet this stranger along the road. And they have no idea who this person is. And this person seems to clearly be out of the loop, ask them a question, and they start talking anyway. As, they, as this person asks them the question, it really seems that the, the demeanor of Cleopas as he responds to this question is, are you serious? You don't know what was going on here in Jerusalem these last few days? Were you born in a barn? Now, if you ask that to Jesus... He'd be kind of, you know, he'd probably have a weird look on his face and go, well, you know, as a matter of fact, but that's beside the point. So it goes on to, to basically share all these things. And I picture this moment as a moment where, where it's, it might even be kind of a, a foot in the mouth moment. You know, those moments that there were awkward moments that I remember as those of you who've been around have, have heard me share about my, um, my days as a student here at UW, I was in a fraternity. Inevitably, sometime during the year, there'd be some, you know, some dance that you'd be going to. And some guy would go up to another guy and be like, oh, yeah, you know, there's this girl I'm really into. You know, she, she seemed to be, you know, give me the vibe, whatever, you know, da-da-da-da-da. And the guy's standing there going, yeah, that's my girlfriend. Okay? You, you're saying a bunch of stuff, and you just don't know who you're talking to. Okay? Can always create a bit of the awkward moment. That's a bit of what I see going on here. These two people who don't know who they're talking to. Two people walking along the road, and the, and the scripture tells us that they were kept from seeing that it was Jesus. We also learned that they had hoped for something that they were in Jerusalem hoping for something and hoping for someone. And similar to a little boy who wants his Atari 2600 and is getting disappointed as gift after gift is open, but the one you really want isn't there. These people have seen a bunch of things, but what they really wanted isn't there. The irony that we get to see as we read the text, that what they really want is right there with them. He's with them. And he's been with them. And it's also amazing to me that as Jesus appears to these two people on the road and is with them, if we were to ask, what is it that Jesus is doing here? What Jesus is doing is listening. When you think about Jesus, when you think about your relationship with God, are you thinking about a God that is with you? A God that is listening. And doing so even as you're confused. 
the text that we just read says that they were downcast. Jesus is with them, and Jesus is listening, but they can't see. We're going to address that question a little bit more, but let's continue in the story. Uh, Let's pick it up at verse 25. He said to them, after they had said all these things, how foolish you are and slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? In beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. Okay, so one of the questions that I think becomes pertinent at this point um, is, is why, why can't they see? Why does Jesus, uh, it, it seems to suggest that they were kept from seeing by some sort of, of divine intervention, whether it was Jesus in a disguise doing some, his superpower or superhero thing. It's, it's kind of hard to tell. In any event, they were kept from seeing why. Uh, Peter Clinkenbeard on our In Speaking team, just, he asked the question, why is Jesus playing games with them? Um, here's, let me see if I, can, if I can try to answer that question. It says that here, well, let me tell you a story first. Um, when, right after I graduated, I worked uh, for the Seattle Mariners baseball team. And I was a huge baseball fan all growing up. And I was having my dream shot here in this internship that I had with the Seattle Mariners. And, and it was actually this time of year, I would get to go down to spring training and you know, I, was, I was working in PR and administration, and my, my desk was literally right by the door where all the players had to, to where they, they passed to go into the clubhouse. So every day, I'm, I'm sitting there at my desk and watching my heroes, watching Ken Griffey Jr., watching Alex Rodriguez, watching Dan Wilson, Jay Buhner. I mean, it was Randy Johnson. This was the heyday of the Seattle Mariners watching them all walk by my desk. And every time there would be this, this kind of celebrity factor where I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, that's, that's Randy Johnson. I know him. He's my bud, okay? But the reality is that all these guys would walk by my desk and sometimes they would even, you know, give me a head nod or something like that, you know, some sort of shout out. And of course that made my day. But there was something about, even though these guys were technically my coworkers, there was, a, there was a celebrity atta- attached to, to them in my mind that was really hard for me to get around. And, and so, you know, these, these guys would walk past my desk day in and day out, and I would be impressed. And, and really, there was little connection between me and these famous coworkers. I think that in part why these two people were kept from recognizing Jesus was to get over the celebrity of Jesus. It was not about being enamored with the celebrity of Jesus. It was about being in relationship with Jesus. These guys walked by my desk every day, but I was not in relationship with them. They were celebrities. I was, I was kind of the, the worker bee. I was anonymous. It's a way of saying, I'm with you on this road. Okay, there's a second explanation. In what we just read in the few verses, it says that Jesus then explained the scriptures to them. 
Uh, perhaps you know this, perhaps you've experienced this on, on your own. When you are, are intently listening to someone, perhaps you're listening to some music that, that you're really getting into, you'll, you'll close your eyes so that you can, you can take in with your ears that much more. That perhaps these two were blinded to who Jesus was because in this moment he wanted them to hear the story of the Messiah on this side of the cross because it would have been a story that would have been very familiar to these two people. They talked about their leaders being the ones that had handed them over. They would have been familiar with what the scriptures would say about the Messiah, but perhaps there was an expectation built in that on this side of Good Friday, on this side of Easter Sunday, if they didn't get caught up in the celebrity of Jesus, they might hear it once again. What were the things that they might have heard? They might have heard Jesus explain to them Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And they might have heard it afresh this time. Words very familiar, but now they can really hear them. They might have heard my suffering servant must suffer and be raised. He will be punished for our iniquities and bruised for our transgressions. They could hear that in a new way on this side of the cross. Perhaps the reason Jesus was playing games with them was to get them to hear the real story about who he is for them to hear the scriptures familiar in a way that they now could understand. If we are going to recognize Jesus, if we're going to recognize the work of God in the world, it is going to be because, in part, we begin to understand the scriptures that much more. So often I, I hear students that are frustrated in their, in their lack of growth in their, in their relationship with Jesus. And we ask questions like, well, are you reading your Bible? No. Are you praying much? No. This is a testimony to get in the scriptures so that there will be that moment where we might be able to recognize, oh, That's who Jesus is. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing for these two guys right here. The Bible is necessary for us in recognizing God. Finally, we get to the last part of this story. It says, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening and the day is almost over. So we went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread. He gave thanks, broke it, and he gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? At once they got up and returned to Jerusalem There they found the 11 and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true. The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way 
and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke bread. Here's what's really interesting to me. Uh, As you examine the Gospels, do you realize that in all of the post-resurrection appearances, Jesus never shows up to just one person. He always shows up to two or more. Community is important. It is in community when two or three or more are gathered that we have the opportunity to recognize who Jesus is. You see, it was in the time and the space and the community that they set aside. They got to the place where they were going and said, hey, why don't you stay with us? We're here, we've got time, we've got space, come in. And in that space, as they broke bread together, their eyes were opened. And as they said, weren't our hearts burning strangely within us? I believe that that was the moment that they were saying that they were coming to this place of going, I get it. I'm beginning to get it. He helped us in understanding what the Messiah, what the Christ, what the anointed one would actually be like and would actually do, what he would have to suffer. And we began to get it. And that burning within them was that anticipation that perhaps you've, perhaps some of you that are headed out on missions will feel it now and in the days leading up to departing for your trips. We heard it from the side-by-side crew about the, about the feeling that they would, they would have as they would uh, approach these kids at camp. When I reflect on, on this feeling, uh, I, I reflect on when I was engaged, before Julie and I were married, that there was, this, there was this anticipation and this excitement about what it would be like to be a husband. But it wasn't really, even though I had talked with friends, I had read books, I had listened to sermons, I had done things to find out, so well, what is it like to be a husband and how might I do that really well? It wasn't until I got up on July 5th, 2002 and said, yes, I do. That my eyes were open to what that is really like. And in the 10 years that have followed, all those things that I had read, those sermons I had listened to had actually started to make a little bit of sense. They didn't before that day but they do now. Similarly, as, as uh, my wife was pregnant and as I knew that I was going to become a father, a similar type of experience, there, there is something burning within you that's a, that's a mix of, of excitement and terror <laughs> and you don't know what it's gonna be like and, and you can't until it actually happens. There is that moment where all the information that you take in, the community that has invested in you, everything comes to a head and you begin to get it. I believe that this story shows us a moment where people get it. And they, they get it because Jesus is with them because Jesus has listened to them, because Jesus has revealed himself to them, 
and they've made the time and space to be together in it. Uh, Theologian N.T. Wright explains this getting it like this. He says, when Jesus rose again, God's whole new creation emerged from the tomb, introducing a world full of new potential and possibility. Indeed, precisely because part of that new possibility is for human beings themselves to be revived and renewed, the resurrection of Jesus doesn't leave us as passive, helpless spectators. We find ourselves lifted up, set on our feet, given new breath in our lungs, and commissioned to go and make new creation happen in the world. The moment clicks. The moment clicks that Jesus is with them, and the Messiah is not going to bring about a political military victory, but he's going to bring about relationship. In explaining the scriptures to them, he doesn't explain what you have to believe about the resurrection in order to claim eternal life. Instead, he says it's about relationship. It's not about me pulling you out of the suffering. It's about me being in the suffering with you. Now, we don't always like that. Sometimes we would rather have a Messiah like I think Cleopas and his companion wanted, that would flat just take us out of the suffering and make sure that it would never have to happen again. And in what Jesus explained was, there is going to be suffering, but in relationship, I will enter into that suffering with you. And finally, what they began to get was back to that key verse that we talked about earlier, verse 21, What they had hoped for is now what they hope in. What they had hoped for, past tense, in this encounter with Jesus is now what they hope in, present tense. So the cross becomes a symbol of hope. What is hope? Hope is simply God's future being realized now. Now, that's pretty abstract. What does it mean for us practically? What I want to challenge us with is that it means an attitude. Is the quote from N.T. Wright says, it's an attitude where on this side of the cross, we recognize that there is potential and possibilities in everything in ourselves, in the world that we live in. Because one of the things that I believe that these guys began to get as well was that this Jesus, this Messiah, was not just for them individually, was not just for Israel, but was for the entire world. And so we, in having a hopeful attitude come to this table, the table where Cleopas and his companion finally began to get it. It's, this is the table where we recognize who Jesus is and what he has done. It's the table where we 
symbolically take in Jesus and remember that Jesus is present with us just as he was on the road to Emmaus. That the thing that we have desired most has been with us all along. And like the two guys on the road to Emmaus, we recognize that at this table. It was on the night that he was betrayed that Jesus took bread, broke it, and gave it and said, this is my body broken for you. And in the same way, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Take and drink. And as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord until he comes again. That is to say, our hope is present. It's not a past hope. It's a present hope. And it means something for our attitude right now. That we can go knowing that there is potential, that there is possibilities, that there is new creation for God came to set the world right. And on this side of the cross has invited us, even us, to participate in that. And we remember and recognize that at this table. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. That the cross is no longer a symbol of defeat, but the cross is a symbol of belovedness and hope. And so, Lord, as we participate at this table tonight, as we go out this spring break, as we complete our finals, may we see and know your possibilities the potential that is all around us and, in fact, even in us. Lord, for your goodness, we give thanks. The goodness you have shown to us and to those around us and to this world. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.